The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look together on the topic of the day and what the Bible has to say about divorce and remarriage. Another sobering topic, really, but a practical one. We've got to deal with it. Uh, divorce is everywhere. It's all around us. By the way, as I'm, just two things I want to say about this message. Uh, it is not my intention to be absolutely comprehensive and answer every question you have about divorce and remarriage. That just ain't going to happen. Uh, once again, just giving basic, fundamental, biblical highlights, giving parameters and boundaries by which you as the thinking Christian and dwelt by the Spirit of God may be a discerning Christian and apply the basic principles to specific situations that you come across in life. So my goal is not to answer every nitpicky question that you have. Some of it gets very complicated. As a matter of fact, there are some questions I don't know how I would answer right now. It'd have to be, I have to wait until I get confronted with it and then be led by the Spirit of God and counsel and prayer before I can give an answer. So the goal here is just to look, go back to the fundamentals. That's all. Back to the fundamentals of what God and His Word has to say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Very important. Also, the second thing I wanted to say about this topic is I am not up here talking about you personally. We have a lot of divorce and remarriage either in this congregation or in your immediate family or somebody you know personally. So, as I'm going through, I'm just looking objectively what does Scripture have to say. And if you're feeling like I'm pointing the finger at you and I'm talking about you and you start to slouch over in your pew like this out of guilt and whoa, you don't need to do that. Just person, just pull them up. We're just talking about the Bible. But that's the reality that the Word of God is living and active, piercing the heart, the mind, the soul, the conscience, that it can make you feel that way. Well, oh, I think the pastor's talking to me. No, I'm, I'm teaching the Bible as I see it, hopefully led by God. Oh, I guess I should say this disclaimer too. I'm not up here talking about marriage, divorce and remarriage because I am an expert on marriage. That may surprise some of you because some of you maybe thought I was an expert on marriage. Come on. Yeah, some of you did. I am not an expert on marriage. Far from it. Um, the only reason I can teach with confidence on what this says is because it's clear in the Bible what it says. God is the expert on marriage. He is the only expert. And by God, I mean God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that is the standard. So I don't have to be a master and perfect in marriage to teach what God says about it. It's His Word, His truth. He's revealed it to us. He wants us to understand it. It's accessible. So that's the presupposition that we have. So let's go ahead and find really six points I want to make about uh, really marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Seventh one is just practical thoughts uh, to leave you with in light of the first six points. So let's go ahead and look at uh, these six truths out of Scripture together. We want a balanced view. That's the most important thing. We want a comprehensive view. We want to look at all the counsel of God, everything the Bible has to say on this issue, because you can't isolate an issue and come up with an imbalanced view of marriage or an imbalanced, myopic, unfair view of divorce and remarriage, because there are Christians who do that. There are Bible teachers who do that. There are pastors who do that. There are pastors, Bible teachers, and others who give horrible, lousy counsel on this issue, sometimes destroying people's lives unintentionally many times. I've seen it firsthand over the years, again and again and again. I think about a good friend that I had, boy, 15 years ago, who married a bum, 
early on in her life. And, but then she was not a believer. So they were both unbelievers. Then she got saved after they got married. And the guy did not get saved and he continued to be a bum. And initiated divorce and he divorced her. But now she was a Christian and she was in a church that had a particular view of divorce. And the elders and the pastor counseled her. Uh, God hates divorce and you are never allowed to get married ever again under any circumstances. Ever. Well, I met her about 20 years after she'd been divorced. And we were talking one day and I just asked her, so, well, and she was telling me about her divorce and her life and everything and I knew her kids and I said, wow, did you, did you ever consider getting remarried or do you have a desire to be remarried? She says, absolutely, I have a desire to be married. I want to be married for 20 years, but... The Bible says I can never remarry. And I was like, what? So we talked it through. Uh, she was liberated at the thought of what I showed her from Scripture. She was frustrated, felt betrayed and hurt because of the counsel that she was given and that she, she was a submissive woman to the Word of God. This is what God says I will obey. Even against what I think the Bible clearly taught. So... Um, I'll never forget that situation. Very frustrating. I just... I think that was bad advice. It was unbiblical. It was unbalanced. It was myopic. And they only told her part of what the Bible says, not what everything the Bible says. That's one example. I could go on and on. So we want the whole picture. But before we get to the details of divorce and remarriage, let's go ahead and look at the foundation. We've got to start at the very beginning, and that's uh, Genesis chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and go to Genesis chapter 2 for point number 1. It's really simple. Apparently people in, some people in California forgot point number 1, and that is God created marriage. That's point number 1. God created marriage. This is like a 10-year dialogue in California. People can't seem to get it straight. What is marriage? How is it defined? Who made it? Who's involved? We're still dialoguing. We're still battling in the courts over that, right? A judge, what was it, last Wednesday, overturned 7 million votes of Californians who voted and said marriage is between one man and one woman. One judge, one person. It doesn't matter what the judge says. Any judge can get up and say marriage is not between one man and one It doesn't change the fact that God created marriage and He said it's between one man and one woman. That's never going to change. So if you're a Christian, you don't need to fear or be in a panic. God is in control. He knows what's going on. It's His most basic institution. He will guard it. He will protect it with a vengeance. That's our comfort. Because it means something so much that is so personal to God Himself. And that starts in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And that is that God created marriage. He designed it. He defined it. Two points that I want to highlight in Genesis 2. Very beginning. Day 6. This really happened. Adam was a real man. And it really happened on day six of creation. Verse 18, uh, actually God created Adam out of the dust of the earth. In verse 7, God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living human being. That is the first human being ever created. It was a miracle. It really happened. It was historical. Adam is not a myth or a legend or a figure or a metaphor. He was a real human being. Verse 18, this is before the curse. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for Adam or the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Why was it not? It was not good for man to be alone because human beings are made in the image of God. God is a social being. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternally social. Therefore, human beings made in God's image are social beings. It is not good for any human to live alone. Totally alone in total isolation. It wasn't good for Adam. This is even before the fall. Not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In other words, literally in the Hebrew, it's I will make a perfect complement to him. That's what that means. So in verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field of the animals, giving them names. And the man gave names to all the cattle in verse 20. In the verse 20, there wasn't a suitable helper yet for Adam. There wasn't a complementary human being. So that's why in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and Adam fell asleep. And then God took one of his ribs, literally closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned or created into a woman from Adam's rib, which he had taken from the man, and brought the woman that he had just created to the man. That was the first wedding ever performed. God created marriage. And that was to be the permanent model. God presented the woman to the man. Verse 22, and the Lord God fashioned, uh, presented to the man... Uh, Verse 23, then Adam saw his beautiful wife, who apparently wasn't wearing a wedding dress, and he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, because she was taken out of the man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father. So this is God's definition, permanent definition of marriage. For this cause, for this reason, it shall be permanent and so. For this cause, a man, singular in the Hebrew, masculine, a man shall leave his family, his father and mother, and shall cleave, be glued to, be bound to, shall cleave to his wife, female, singular in the Hebrew, one man, one woman, together. That is God's definition of marriage. And they shall become one flesh, one entity in the eyes of God. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So that's God's definition of marriage. One man, one woman, to be permanent only in this lifetime, not forever, like Mormonism teaches, in eternity, only in this life, permanent in this life, was God's ideal and His design. It is monogamous. One man, one woman. It is heterosexual, male and female. All defined by God, very clearly. This is reaffirmed all throughout Scripture. So God created marriage and He designed it to be permanent. That's why when Jesus comments later in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, God's ideal was permanence in marriage in this lifetime. In other words, there wasn't supposed to be divorce. That, is, that grieves God when there's divorce, when it breaks up. God has brought together, let no man put asunder or divorce or separate. Marriage was created by God to be permanent in this lifetime, but also very important, B, is to be a picture. To be a picture, that's Revelation 19:7 through 10. When Jesus returns in the future at the second coming, He calls all of His saints together from the church and He has a celebration, a heavenly spiritual celebration that He's been preparing for over 2,000 years. It is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that is when Jesus gets married to His church, His people, the body of Christ that He has been preparing through salvation and sanctification for over 2,000 years. History is headed somewhere. We are all walking down the aisle to the wedding to be betrothed to King Jesus. That is... The ultimate goal of marriage. So the institution of marriage was designed by God in eternity past to be a living metaphor on this earth to remind the world and show the world that history is going somewhere and is that the church will be eternally married to Jesus Christ, the husband. That was God's design. This is reaffirmed in Ephesians chapter 5 as well. So a marriage in this life is only temporary. It is temporal. It is 
for this life only, and it is, for, it is a picture of the greater eternal reality. Jesus Christ being married to the body of Christ, and Jesus will never divorce the body of Christ. When Jesus saves a soul, you can't become unsaved. Jesus doesn't divorce His own. So that's why God created marriage. His intention was that it would be permanent and also a picture of a greater relationship in eternity. Nobody talks about that in the news, of the very definition of what marriage is all about. God created it. Point number two, because God created marriage and had specific intentions for it, to be a testimony of the world, He hates divorce. Wow, hates is a strong word. Well, I didn't make that word up. It came right out of the Bible, so I want to read it so I don't get falsely accused. Malachi chapter 2, your last book in the Old Testament. God's actually a little upset in Malachi if you read that whole book. Um, God married the nation of Israel. He made, in other words, He made a covenant. He entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. Israel was His bride. And Israel proved to be unfaithful. Israel committed adultery against God. Israel, as a bride, went after other husbands. Called idolatry, Baal, and false gods. And God didn't divorce Israel. God was patient. God was forgiving. But when Israel did sin, God declared that He hated divorce, spiritual divorce and also physical divorce. And that's Malachi chapter 2. Let's go ahead and look at it. God is talking to Israel. Um, we'll start at verse 15. But no one has done so who was, has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking the godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. So he's talking about human marriage here. The first wife that you married. Don't deal treacherously with your wife. Don't divorce your wife. Don't divorce your spouse. Why? The reason is verse 16. God says, For I hate divorce. Those were His words. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And Him who covers His garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I hate divorce. So we need to talk about that when we're talking about the definition of marriage and divorce and practical issue that it is. We need to understand and be honest. God hates divorce. Why does God hate divorce? Well, because it violates what we said in the first point. God's intention was that it would be permanent. And when you divorce, you're breaking something that was intended to be permanent. You're also, when you have a divorce, you are skewing the greater reality. You are skewing, emaciating, messing up, making cloudy the greater picture of Christ's relationship to His church. That is being messed up when we get divorced. That's why God hates divorce. He also hates divorce because, simply speaking, it is a sin. Many times, or many reasons people get divorced is because one of the partners was unfaithful and they commit adultery. Here's what God says in Deuteronomy 24, verse 4, which is based on one of the Ten Commandments, one of the timeless Ten Commandments, right? One of them is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. In other words, don't violate your marriage relationship. And in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, you violated the marriage relationship. And in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, the adulterer was to be stoned to death. That's a divorce. They have been separated. God hates that. But one of the leading causes of divorce is adultery and unfaithfulness. And in Deuteronomy 24.4, God says He calls adultery an abomination. That's the word He uses, abomination. Same verse, He calls it a sin. So divorce is a sin. Divorce is an abomination. Adultery is an abomination. God hates divorce. 
another reason why God hates divorce so much is because it violates that covenant, that sacred, solemn vow. Because most people, when they get married, they, make, they exchange vows, right? They make a vow to each other. They make a vow before the community to hold them accountable and their friends and their family and their church. And most of all, they are making a vow to Almighty God Himself if they're getting married before God. And if you get divorced, you're violating all those vows. The vow you made to your partner, the vow you made to your family and friends, the vow you made to the church or whoever you're accountable to, and most of all, the vow that you made to Almighty God. And God takes vow-breaking very seriously. And I want you to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, where your wisdom books are, because I want to read this passage about taking presumptuous vows and how sacred it is and what a violation that is to rush into Vows, especially when there's something so important and sacred and hallowed like marriage. You know, the Hollywood scene is a joke. They just trample all over marriage and its sanctity and sacredness. They don't, they don't think divorce is wrong at all, and they define that for our culture. Divorce is not wrong. It's no big deal. You, as a matter of fact, they, they make written agreements assuming they're going to get divorced. Here's what you get. Here's what I get when we get divorced. That's the mindset today that we are living in, contrary to what the Bible says. We need to take our vows seriously as a believing, holy community as God would have us do. So that's Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Just listen to this. Starting at verse 1. Guard your steps. Be cautious. Live cautiously. Live circumspectly. Carefully. Deliberately. Don't rush in anything. Don't be rash in your decisions. That's the whole context of what he's talking about. Guard the way you live. Guard the way you make decisions. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Don't be foolish. Well, what's being foolish? When you're hasty, when you make hasty decisions, when you rush into things, especially important things. Don't ever rush into important decisions. Ever, ever, ever. Verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. And that's what we do when we get married. We make a vow before God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For God takes no delight in fools. Pay, what you, oh, pay your vow before God. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that, it, well, it was a mistake. How many times do we hear that about a marriage that's on the brink of divorce or they're getting divorced? Well, it was a mistake. God, and Scripture says, well, don't do that. Don't use that as an excuse. Why should God be angry? Wow. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words... There is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Be careful when you make vows, especially wedding vows. That's why when I do weddings and I'm counseling and doing premarital counseling and I, I'm going to do a wedding for somebody, I interrogate that couple before I agree to do the wedding. Are you both believers? And one of the questions I ask, and I ask them individually, under what circumstances would you consider getting divorced? And I ask each person. Young, if they say, well, under this circumstance, then it's over. I am not going to do your wedding. If you are leaving a window or a possibility of getting divorced and you're calling yourselves Christian, then I am not going to endorse this. Now, sometimes they might, if they're Christians, they might need teaching on it. And if they come around, that's okay. 
And they could always say, oh, yeah, absolutely not. We're, we'd never consider divorce, and they get divorced anyway. So ultimately, I can't control it, but at least I've got to go by my convictions that were clearly communicated that are in accordance with Scripture. And Ecclesiastes 5 is a huge one. God hates divorce because it violates one of the most sacred covenants that human beings can make to each other and before God Himself. Uh, oh, one thing that I said, that uh, adultery... Many times involved that in the Old Testament was worthy of death. And then people say, well, aren't we glad we're in the New Testament and adultery doesn't deserve death anymore? And I'd say, well, that's wrong thinking. From God's point of view, adultery still deserves death. If there is adultery, there should be death. If there is adultery, there should be an execution. That's what God requires. That is a New Testament truth. Wow. That's hardcore, McManus. You have flipped. Well, no, it's really this simple. The book of Romans says... The wages of sin is death, right? So it's not just the adulterer. If there is a lie, there deserves to be death. If there is anger, there deserves to be death. If there's a lustful thought, there deserves to be death. That is what God requires. That has not changed. What God requires has not changed. If there is adultery, if there is divorce, death is required somewhere. An execution needs to happen. And here's the good news. Jesus Christ came down here as the God-man and willingly got executed by the Father on the cross forever for every sinner who ever lived. And that includes the adulterer. That includes the divorcee. That includes the person who has lustful thoughts. That includes the homosexual who turns from their sin. That includes the liar. That includes the thief. Every sin requires death. And Jesus died the death for sinners. Isn't that good news? Amen. The wages of sin is death. And then Romans goes on to tell us the good news. That's why Jesus died. God hates divorce. Well, what if you're sitting in a situation where you have been divorced and maybe even remarried on unbiblical grounds and you find yourself as a Christian with maybe a, a heavy-laden conscience that, man, I, now that I've learned what the Bible has to say, I messed up. I never should have got divorced in the first place. Or I never should have got remarried in the first place. Well, then you have violated God's Word and you have committed a sin. Well, then what should you do? Well, then you just simply do, if you're a Christian, First John chapter 1, verse 9. And you confess your sin, that specific sin, to Jesus Christ. That sin that was worthy of death. So if you have committed an illegitimate divorce, but you're a believer and you've never confessed that sin specifically to Jesus, you need to do that. Confess your sin. Admit what you did was wrong. Admit it was sinful, that it grieved God's heart. And then thank Jesus for being executed in your place so you can have total forgiveness of that sin once and for all in eternity. That is the good news. That is why Jesus died. He died for you, sinner. doesn't matter what your sin is. Which leads us to point number three. God forgives divorce. He hates divorce, but He forgives divorce. There is no other so-called God in the universe that can do that legitimately. Only the true God can because He's provided a way for forgiveness of any sin. Just like we said about suicide, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Even though some Christians might think it is, or some people might think it is. God forgives divorce. He really does. How do we know this? Well, Old Testament model of comprehensive picture of God's forgiveness of sin for 14 chapters. God gave us this book called Hosea. Where this man, righteous man, marries a woman who's unfaithful and she cheats on her husband. And his name was Hosea. He was the faithful husband and she married a lady, a beautiful, gorgeous female lady named Gomer. Get a load of that one. Gomer? That's her name. 
And she kept cheating on her husband time and time again. And Hosea didn't give up. He didn't say, oh, I'm going to divorce you. I've had it with you. Forget you. I'm not going to love you anymore. Hosea continues to pursue her and pursue her and pursue, to forgive and forgive. And he woos the estranged wife back by his committed, persevering, forgiving love. And Hosea was a real person, as was Gomer, but that was a living parable, a living metaphor of what God is like towards His people, what He was like towards Israel. Because God was married to Israel, and Israel was unfaithful, and committed adultery, which deserved death and separation. And God said, no. I am a forgiving God. I'm going to pursue Israel. I'm going to woo her back. I'm going to call her to repentance. We're going to be restored. We're going to be reconciled. It's going to be better than before, as a matter of fact, and that is yet to come in the future. God continues His marriage to the people of Israel, the believing people of Israel. That whole book was written to show that God is a forgiving God and that divorce can be forgiven. There are conditions to getting it forgiven, by the way. The first condition of being forgiven by God of divorce, and I already mentioned that, is you need to repent of that sin when it happens if you were in the wrong, if you were at fault. And if there's true repentance, God will forgive you either for adultery or for divorce. That's, that's possible. Because Jesus got executed for that sin. I think of Psalm 32. If you want to turn there, you can. Psalm 32. This is uh, one of two Psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, where David is really pouring out his heart for just egregious sins that he committed. Uh, One was adultery. Another one was murder. Can't get any worse than that. David committed them all. But he was a believer. He loved God. He grieved. Uh, God weighed him down with guilt for over a year. And finally he fessed up and he confessed to sin. And that's the testimony in Psalm 32. Here's David. Could be that he was talking about his adultery or his murder or whatever it was. And he said, when I kept silent about my sin before God and others, trying to hide my sin, my body wasted away. Guilt ate away at me for my groaning all day long. Guilt literally began to affect him physically. Depression, his physiology. For day and night, God's hand was heavy upon him with guilt. My vitality, his physical strength, literally was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Then finally, he says, I acknowledge my sin to thee, God. I confessed my sin, finally, to you. And get this, my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, to the Lord. And God, thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. That is beautiful. David the adulterer confessed his sin and God forgave him of his sin. All of it. And he was washed fresh and anew. And that's why David said, When I sinned against thee and thee only did I sin. And God washed him clean and totally forgave him. And that's the promise. That is the good news. If you've committed any sin, you go to God, you bow the knee, you confess your sin, and God will in Christ forgive you of any sin and wash you clean and anew. Even divorce. Even adultery. So that's a condition for being forgiven for divorce is true repentance. Another condition uh, or reality or a possibility of why God forgives divorce is because Jesus Christ died on the cross for divorce. And I just wanted to go to John 3 because I've commented on this a little bit, but I want to highlight John 3, starting at verse 14 through 16. And I want you to keep John 3 and 4 together. When John wrote his Gospel, he didn't write chapter breaks. He didn't write verse breaks. This is one continuous narrative. So John 3 and John 4, they go together. There's a close context in terms of the understanding there. And in John 3... Jesus gives the meaning of why He died on the cross. What His death on the cross was going to accomplish. And here's what He said. And as Moses was lifted up in the serp, uh, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so Moses in the desert, He lifted up a rod with a serpent on it, and anybody that would look at the serpent up in the sky instantly in faith would be healed by God. 
So the picture is being healed by faith by looking up at that which is cursed. And Jesus is talking about, He applies that to Himself. Just as Moses lifted up this poisoned snake in the air and people looked at it and got saved, even so the Son of Man, me, Jesus, I will be lifted up as a curse for all the world to see and anybody that looks to me who is cursed by God, I will die in their place. I will be their substitute. Believe in me. Trust in me. And you will instantaneously be forgiven of your sin. That's the picture. I will be like Moses. Lift it up. I'm going to die for the sin of the world. It doesn't matter what the sin is. That whoever believes in Jesus and His death, that the Father punished Him on the cross, in Christ will have eternal life. Forgiven sin will live forever. Will be in God's family. Verse 16, For God so loved the world. For God so loved sinners. For God so loved those who committed adultery. That's what that means. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish in eternal hell, but have everlasting life. Immediate, total, eternal forgiveness. It's the good news of Jesus. Now keep that great truth in mind where Jesus talked about this publicly. Here's why Jesus died. I died for the sin of the world. Anybody that looks to me in faith. And one chapter later, we meet one of the most despicable people in the New Testament. The woman at the well. Why was she despicable? She was an outcast. I could go on and on why she was despicable. She was a half-breed. She had a, a warped religion. She was totally immoral. Virtually a prostitute. Jesus engages this woman in conversation. He knew everything about her, yet He didn't push her away. He welcomed a conversation with this woman. So in John chapter 4, he greets this woman. They're all alone. They're by this well. They start having a conversation. Jesus is very gracious. Uh, it says in verse 7 of John 4, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So Jesus initiates the conversation. He knows she's an adulteress. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you being a Jew asked me for a drink? I thought I had the cooties. I'm a Samaritan woman. What are you talking to me for? And Jesus answered and said to her, Man, if you only knew the gift of God, if you only knew salvation, if you only knew who I was and why I came, I came to die for sins like yours. Man, I'm offering you salvation in me. That's what He means in verse 10. If you only knew the gift of God, the gift of God is salvation for sin. I don't care what your sin is. If you only know who it was, it says to you, give me a drink. If you only knew, I am the Messiah, Savior of the world. You would have asked me, and I would have given you living water, eternal life, forgiveness of sin. All you've got to do is ask and believe. She is baffled. She didn't know who He is. So finally, she's kind of evasive in her conversation. And finally, Jesus has to cut to the chase and get to her sin. He has to point out and expose her sin to show her that she has a need for a Savior. We've got to do that with sinners. Nobody wants to get saved if they don't think they need to be saved. And that's what He does. Uh, in verse 15, uh, the woman says to Jesus, Sir, give me some of this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Verse 16, and he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Oh, that's kind of weird. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, Well, you have well said, I have no husband. Yeah, you're right, lady, because I know everything about you, because I'm God in the flesh. Verse 18, For you have had five husbands. She's committed adultery repeatedly. She should have been killed five times over according to the Old Testament law. She was a pathetic sinner. But Jesus doesn't say, you're a pathetic sinner. I don't even want anything to do with you. She was a pathetic sinner. Jesus knew it. She was an adulterer. She deserved death. And yet Jesus continues to talk to her because He loves her. And He knows He's going to die for her sin. And He's offering her salvation with the Gospel. And she responds. You've had five husbands. You're an adulterer. 
You violated the, uh, the Pentateuch, which you study as a Samaritan woman. Even the guy that you're living with a guy right now who's not your husband, and that is morally wrong. That is sinful. That is unbiblical. This you have truly said. The man you have right now is not your husband. Verse 19, the woman is overwhelmed with Jesus' knowledge of her personal life, and, he says, Sir, and she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know everything about me. Well, anyway, Jesus goes on to offer her the gospel. I believe she responds positively. She understands her testimony at the end as she just runs off to go tell all of her friends, I think I've met the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And I believe we're going to see the Samaritan woman in heaven. She got saved. And yet she was a divorcee. She committed adultery many times over. There's hope for Elizabeth Taylor, the actress who's been married eight or nine. I lost count. She repents. Christ died for the sin of divorce. Uh, let's go on to number four. God allows divorce. He does. So that's Matthew 19. Let's look at it. Cross references Mark 10. Matthew 19. It's the end of Jesus' ministry. For three years, he's been building up antagonism against the Jewish leaders. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they can't stand him. They hate him. They want to kill him, actually. So they want to publicly trap him and discredit him. And that's their goal here. So they have, as he's teaching publicly to the multitudes, they have a Q&A session publicly in front of everybody with the goal and intent of causing Jesus to stumble, stump the chump, if you will. And so they think of a very difficult question to make him look silly or to make him look stupid and idiotic and discredit him as a prophet of God. And that's their motive. So that's Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees who hated Jesus... They came to Jesus testing Him. There it is, testing Him. Testing Him. In other words, they're, they're coming up with a conjured, theoretical, hypothetical question to cause Him to stumble. By the way, I hate those kind of questions. Those theoretical, hypothetical, very difficult questions. Because sometimes they're hard to understand. Sometimes they're impossible to, to answer. But that's the kind of question they have here. Uh, so they wanted to test him and they're saying, so here's their question to Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to, to divorce his wife for any cause at all? That's key. Because the Jews of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they believed that you could mar- uh, divorce your wife for any cause at all. Now it doesn't say that in the Old Testament, but that is what they believed. They came up with that. These human laws, these human interpretations of the Mosaic law, this commentary that is uninspired, and they perverted Moses' law. And one of those was the view of divorce. They found a phrase in Deuteronomy that allowed for a certificate of divorce, and then they just camped on that and milked it for all it's worth and came up for the teaching that a Jewish man could divorce his wife for any cause at all. She burned the toast, you're out of here. She burned the eggs, you're out of here. You didn't do the laundry, you're out of here. Literally, that's what they did. This is their frame of mind and understanding. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And they knew that Jesus would say no. Because they knew that isn't what it said in the Mosaic Law. But they also knew that there was an accepted interpretation on the Mosaic Law that contrasted that. And so they were trying to set Jesus up. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said, Have you not read in your Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, that God, who created them, Adam and Eve, from the beginning, made them male and female. And He said, verse 5, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave, shall be bound to, shall be glued to forever to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer 
two, but they are one. You can't divide one. You can't do that. What therefore God has joined together in marriage, let no human being separate, divorce, put asunder. That's the biblical teaching. And then verse 7 it says, Then they said to him, Ah, we got you. Then what, why did Moses command, quote, to give, us, give her a certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy? So they point out this phrase where apparently Moses did allow times where there could be a divorce. And that's true. It is taught by Moses. But they're taking it out of context. And here's Jesus' answer. Well, Moses did allow divorce, and here's why. Uh, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, because human beings are sinful, that's why, it is inevitable that sinners are going to get divorced. It is inevitable that sinners will be unfaithful. It is inevitable that sinners will be committing adultery. It is inevitable that sinners will live a lie or try to and then get caught. Hence, God provided, made a provision for finite fallen human beings to have a divorce when necessary from a biblical point of view. So God does allow divorce. He made an allowance for divorce. And the big picture answer of when God allowed divorce is uh, God allowed divorce for a biblical reason. So in order to get divorced, you had to have a biblical reason in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. If you're going to get divorced and you are a Christian, you need a biblical reason. And I've done plenty of counseling over 20 years from Christians who come in or professing Christians who inevitably tell me they want a divorce. And I will always ask them without hesitation, what is the biblical basis for the divorce you are pursuing? Please tell me, Christian. And I want to see it from the Bible. And many times... uh, that's news to them. Wow. Well, this is California. We have no fault divorce since the 1960s. You can get divorced for any reason at all. Well, we're not talking about we're talking about the Bible because you're a Christian. What is your biblical justification for getting divorced? Because there are some. What is yours? If they don't have a biblical justification, then I can't support your divorce as a pastor. And if you're a Christian and you pursue it, you're being disobedient. Don't do that. Sometimes they do have a biblical justification. Because God allows divorce. Jesus affirmed it. God in the Old Testament allowed a divorce under certain circumstances and for different reasons. The first one, the first reason we were to look at it, God allowed divorce because of the hardness of heart. Divorce is always a reflection of the sinfulness of humanity, isn't it? Always, always, always. Every single divorce that ever takes place ultimately is a result of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness slash some sin that was committed probably. Always. That's just humanity. That's who we are. That's why Jesus had to die for us. But here are some allowances for biblical divorce. God allows divorce in the case of irreconcilable adultery. So if two Christians are married and then one of the Christians commits adultery, according to the Bible and Jesus and Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Deuteronomy... If your partner committed adultery, you have a biblical justification to divorce your partner. But in the Old Testament, the person who committed adultery would be executed. They would die, and that's why you were freed up to marry again. But we don't execute physically people who are committing adultery anymore or in the New Testament. But it's still an allowance made by Jesus in the New Testament that if your partner commits adultery, then you are free to marry another. But in a Christian context, you know that... Uh, divorce is not the best option. It's not the best option as Christians. The best option is even if your believing partner commits adultery as a Christian, you have the supernatural capacity given to you by God to forgive your partner. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. That is the high road. You will be most like God when you forgive. Did you know that? You are most like God when you forgive. 
There's no sin that your spouse committed against you that is greater than any sin you've committed against a holy God. None. And if you're a Christian, He has forgiven you. Option number one is pursue forgiveness. Pursue reconciliation. You confront. You confront hard. You do it with the church. High accountability according to the Word of God. Consequences are severe, but you still pursue forgiveness and reconciliation to every conceivable extent. This is if two Christians are married. You don't have to divorce. Forgiveness is the better option between two believers. And that's the tricky part. Well, were they both believers? Well, sometimes we don't know. Sometimes you thought you knew your spouse was a believer and ten years later it turns out there's Zippo fruit after ten years. I don't think they were a believer. So that is, that's a difficult situation. But in the event that... Um, they are, it's a believer and an unbeliever and the unbeliever commits adultery and leaves, then the Christian is free by God's grace to divorce the spouse who committed adultery and left with no recourse from God. It's an allowance given by God. God allows divorce. In that case, God does it to, to free up the faithful partner. Man, Here's one, one of the couples who is faithful to their vows. They didn't cheat. They weren't planning on cheating. They're trying to be faithful. They're not a perfect spouse. But they were being faithful to the marriage, to the vow, to the children, to the family, to the reputation, to the church, and somebody else. The other spouse commits adultery and violates all of that. And they're out. And they leave. Then God allows that divorce to free up the faithful partner by His grace. If it was a believer and unbeliever. So that they might be freed up either to live a single life before God or freed up to remarry a believer. Uh, there's another allowance that God gives in the New Testament for divorce that was not given in the Old Testament, and that's in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And that is the situation that, regarding my friend early on that I mentioned where her and her husband got saved. I mean, they got married, but they weren't saved when they got married. This happens all the time in the church. You've got two people who aren't believers. They get married, and then in the course of the marriage, one of them gets saved. That creates a problem. It creates a mess a lot of times. It's hard. And many times those situations end in divorce. So not all divorces are the same. Not all scenarios are the same. So if you've got a situation where you've got a believer married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever decides to just leave, they didn't commit adultery, they're just, I'm out of here, I'm sick of your Jesus stuff, I'm tired of you going to church, I'm, try, I'm tired of you making me go to church, I'm tired of you going to Bible studies, I'm tired of your weird uh, Christian friends, I'm tired of the John 3.16 stickers on my beer can, I've had it, I'm out of here. And that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. 10 to, by the way, he's talking to Gentiles here. These are people, for the most part, who probably got married and then they got saved after they got married. So they're in these mixed marriages, these unequal marriages. Very common in Corinth, very common in America today. And so he gives guidelines here. What do you do if you're living with an unbeliever? Well, if you get saved during your marriage and now you're unequally yoked, if your unbelieving partner is willing to live with you in peace, then you can go ahead and live with them in peace. And by God's grace, maybe they'll get saved over time by your good testimony and His good grace. If your unbeliever gets sick of you, tired of you, and it destroys all peace in the home, and the unbeliever decides, I'm out of here, then you are allowed to let them go and desert, or maybe they just bail without asking. That is desertion. And Paul says, then you are okay to pursue a divorce with the unbeliever who deserted you or bailed on you. Or maybe they are the one that even initiated the divorce. You're free, Christian. You're not culpable. In that situation, and his conclusion is in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7, yet if the unbelieving uh, partner leaves the marriage, then let them leave. 
let them leave. You're not going to change their heart, their mind. You're not going to coerce them. You can't do that. That's God's business. Let them go. God wants peace in your home. God wants peace in your Christian home. That is such a beautiful, comforting phrase. That's what God wants in your home. Peace among all parties. It's the end of verse 15. God wants peace. Fighting with your spouse, your unbelieving spouse, all the time, and it's horrific and you can't even come home. God does not want that in a family. Let the unbeliever leave. The brother or the sister, the Christian, is not under bondage in such cases. I believe that means they are free to be divorced and free to marry a believer. Why? Because God has called us to familial family peace. God allows divorce for biblical reasons. Number five, God allows remarriage. Under the right conditions and circumstances, God allows remarriage. trying to simplify this because it gets complicated. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes it clear that if two Christians, two bona fide Bible-believing Christians get divorced, this is very important. If two Christians get divorced, neither of those Christians are allowed to marry anybody else. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. If a believer and unbeliever get divorced, then the believer if it was initiated by the unbeliever, then the believer is allowed to remarry. If a believer and unbeliever are married and they get divorced and the unbeliever commits adultery, then the believer can be divorced and remarried. If a believer and unbeliever are married, the unbeliever... Oh, no. Here's the other scenario. Two Christians are married. They divorce. One of the Christians remarries. That was a sin. They weren't supposed to do that. They have committed adultery. In the Old Testament, they would have been executed and killed. Their life was taken. That frees up the living party. They've been liberated to remarry. It's getting complicated. But anyway, it's like unscrambling an egg sometimes trying to counsel these people. But God has a provision. So two Christians who get divorced, are not allowed to remarry anybody. If one of those commits adultery, then the other partner partner can marry. Or if the other partner, two Christians get divorced and one of them dies, then you are free, according to Romans, to remarry. But don't pray for that. Don't instigate that. Don't wish for that. But it's true. They die, you're free. And here's another common one. People who are professing Christians get married. They live together for ten years. They get divorced. They're both professing Christians when they get divorced. And then the, there's a Christian who's producing fruit. There's another one that's a professing Christian hasn't produced fruit in 15 years. It could be they're not a believer. But we don't know. We've got to watch their life. That adds another scenario that you've got to think through, talk through, pray through, seek wisdom and counsel on. So, but God does allow remarriage under certain circumstances, biblical conditions, Uh, Always it's got to be, did you seek reconciliation first if there was uh, adultery involved? Did you seek forgiveness and reconciliation first? God wants you to always pursue forgiveness. That is the first resort. Divorce is the last resort. You're most like God when you forgive. 
I must say this, because I've come up in, in the Christian community time and time again, the people that really irritate me or that I think are some of the biggest hypocrites, and these are Christian hypocrites, they do exist, Christian hypocrites, are the Christian hypocrites who look down their nose at people who have been divorced or divorced and remarried because they're married and they've never been divorced. And I've met some, of, some Christians like that, and I knew what they were doing in high school and college with people they weren't married to, engaging in the benefits of sexual intimacy with people they weren't married to. Yet because they were never divorced, it's okay. They're exonerated. That's hypocrisy. They violated the marriage covenant. Uh, so God allows remarriage under certain circumstances that are biblically delineated. If reconciliation was pursued, uh, if there was true repentance involved in all the parties, uh, if there was a biblical divorce, then you're free to be remarried. And if you do consider remarriage after being divorced, you can marry only a fellow believer. That's God's condition. You can only marry in the Lord. So God does allow remarriage. And then finally, number six, God does forgive divorce. He forgives adultery. He allows divorce. He allows remarriage. But most of the times it is with consequences, isn't it? I have not been through a divorce. I know a lot of people who have. It's very, uh, in my immediate family with my, ten, my nine siblings, among the ten of us, there have been seven divorces. Seven in my immediate family. So I know a little bit what it's like, how devastating it is. I don't think there's anything that will rip your soul out more than anything than a divorce. So there's the emotional, personal consequences that come, come up uh, in divorce. Uh, two other consequences. By the way, Galatians 6-7 says, uh, don't be deceived. You will reap what you sow. You commit adultery. You get divorced for the wrong reason. You get divorced at all. There's going to be consequences. You can't avoid it in this life. Consequences are different for different people, for different reasons. But 6a, here's just two consequences that are common, even in the church. Uh, if you do get divorced, uh, there will be consequences regarding your testimony, on your testimony, on your character, on what people perceive about you, what they think about you. When you reveal for the first time, oh, by the way, I was previously married. Oh, I've been divorced once or twice. I mean, many times people just, boom, there's a stigma. You have been boxed in. You have been categorized. And labeled, remember, that was Satan's name in Revelation 12, the categorizer. And that's just the way humans are. Your, your testimony will probably suffer. As a matter of fact, I think about a church I was candidating at over 15 years ago, and they wanted to hire me as the senior pastor. They were about to. This was in the Midwest, and we had a conference call on the phone uh, with their board, their leadership. I think it was their elders, and they were ready to hire me on the spot. And man, they wanted me. And I, I was interested and ready to go but then after they asked me a whole bunch of questions I started asking them questions because I read through all their documents and some stuff just didn't seem right kind of fishy and I said what do you guys think about divorce what's your position well we believe that you can't be you can never serve as an elder in the church if you've ever been divorced I was like wow why is that well the phrase in first Timothy 3 says you have to be a one womaned man so if you've been divorced and remarried you've had more than one woman in your life therefore you're disqualified at being an elder and I said wow well, I disagree with that interpretation because Paul knew the word divorce, and if he meant divorced, he would have said divorced in 1 Timothy 3, and he didn't. Uh, so we disagreed on that. So I just started going, digging a little further, and I said, well, oh, and I said, I don't, I don't agree with that. And then they said, well, actually, we've changed and amended our view a little bit. We're a little more gracious here at this church because we used to not allow anybody to become a member who's ever been divorced. I was like, wow. Bye-bye. Click. You don't let sinners come to your church. Oh, really? Wow, okay, you got a perfect church. That's good. Now I can tell people where the only perfect church in America is. Thank you. 
Actually, before I hung up, I did remind them about, uh, so the woman at the well who got saved under Jesus' ministry wouldn't be allowed to be a member at your church? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, well, uh, 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 are you telling me that Paul, the Christian killer who got saved, wouldn't be allowed to be, or that it's okay for him to be a member of your church because he's a murderer, but because he never committed adultery, that was okay? Um, are you saying that uh, uh, divorce and remarriage is worse than murder and killing Christians? Uh, well, well, okay, i got to go. Bye. Anyway. That's how that went. But anyway, it has consequences and it can be on your testimony. And by the grace of God, you're washed clean and new in Jesus Christ, aren't you? It doesn't matter what other people think of you. Who cares? If you know Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven. You're a child of God, child of the King, a holy one, a saint. Saint, whoever you are, fill in the blank. That's who you are before God. And then probably the most devastating long-term effects are on the children, aren't they? When there are children involved and you get divorced and just as the years go by, you're going to see what those consequences are. It's, it is horrific. I've been involved for years in counseling situations, partnering situations from people in our churches where I have served. Uh, it is heartbreaking. It is ugly. It is continual. It is ongoing. It is lifelong. And you've got to live day by day, week by week, by the wisdom and the grace of God. But God is sufficient. God is sufficient. First Corinthians tells us He is. Romans 8.28 applies to that situation just like any other situation that God can even take that mess, that sordid mess, and work all things together for good for those of you and those of us who know Jesus Christ personally. He's the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. He is the God of salvation, salvaging lives, ongoing sanctification, preparing us for glory, for all eternity. That is the good news. We're going somewhere. This life is not our home. Man, I was blessed and actually surprised by and thankful for the opening Scripture that was read because I never would have thought of that as a divorce passage out of Isaiah 40 that Paul read. Because that's really, from a Christian's point of view, that's where you need to end, isn't it? Not with all the ugliness and the sin and the mess. We know that. We need some hope. We need some grace. To live by, and that's what Jesus Christ offers every sinner. And as believers, we have that grace. We will be renewed even if you've been through the worst kind of divorce imaginable. If you are a believer, He will renew your spirits through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and He will carry you as His own. Finally, number seven, suggestions for preventing divorce. Those of you who aren't married yet, I don't have time to write them down. I'm going to read fast. Uh, preventative measures. Know the person first thoroughly before you get married. Take some time. Take time. Time is a beautiful test and gift that God has given us. Joseph and Mary were engaged for a year for a reason. To test. Also, during that time of engagement, that takes time, stay pure. Stay morally pure. Don't be indulging in the blessings and the fruits of marriage and the privileges of marriage if you're not married. That is called fornication. That was a sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Stay morally pure. Don't be having sex before marriage. Don't be living together and cohabitating, which is what the world tells us to do. Well, let's try it out for a while and see if it works. That is sinful. That is wrong. That violates God's covenant. Don't do that. Stay morally pure. Get accountability to stay morally pure. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. What else? Get lots of biblical counseling before you get married. Lots and lots and lots of it. Lots. Debbie and I, we got a, an arsenal full of marriage counseling. And it still didn't make me a perfect husband. I'm sorry. 
we had 20, 20 weeks of a counseling class on marriage. We had uh, an 18-week seminary class for two units on family. We had an 18-week uh, two-unit class at the Master's College before we got married on biblical marriage. We had 10 weeks, four hours every Sunday of premarital counseling at the church we got married at. It was brutal. We started with like 50 people, and when the class was done, I think it was me and Debbie holding hands. <gasps> And the guy was all proud. That's my goal, to screen them because I don't want to be marrying people who will get divorced. The guy doesn't do weddings. Nobody gets married. <laughs> get lots of biblical counseling. Another one, marry someone who does not believe in divorce. Another one. I went to a shepherd's conference about four years ago. Q&A session. Johnny Mack was the guest speaker. John MacArthur. Some lady been married probably 72 years, raised her hand and said, can you tell me something about the Bible to fix my marriage, or just fix marriage in general? Boy, marriage is hard. And he said, well, I've been, I've been a pastor for 40 years, been counseling for 40 years, been married for more, and all I can tell you is this regarding marriage. Have realistic expectations. That's all I said. Next question. I wrote that down. I thought that was not very helpful. Have realistic expectations. I've been trying to figure out what that means for four years now. Not, have, not lower your expectations. Have, real, have biblical expectations. In other words, the person you marry is not perfect. They're a sinner. You're a sinner. Your best friend is not them. It will always be Jesus. That's realistic expectations. That's what he meant. Well, I'm a perfectionist. I, how, you're a sinner. How can you be a perfectionist? I never understand that. Almost done. Preventing divorce. Be a forgiving person. Commit yourself to being a forgiving person. If you're not a forgiving person, you will get divorced. And then finally, probably the most important, see your own sin before God. See yourself as a pathetic, horrible sinner first before you evaluate your spouse. God didn't divorce you, Christian. You have no business divorcing your partner, especially if they're a believer. Well, that's in a nutshell. And we've gone long, but this is a very important and difficult issue. Let's go ahead and thank God for the truth of His Word. Father, we do thank You for our time together. Thank you for the clarity of Scripture. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit, our teacher. And I, God, I thank you for that Scripture is sufficient to talk about this difficult reality of divorce. We know it, it grieves you. It's a reflection of our sin. It's why we need a Savior. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for all sin, including adultery, divorce, unforgiveness, betrayal. On and on it goes. To you be the glory. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.